Warning, this podcast may contain explicit content. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the Noisemaker Podcast, where we interview bands that you may have never found anywhere else. We are your number one spot for discovering all new music, get to know artists, understand what drives them, and hear from some of their top tracks. Join me, your host, Rocky Ferenberg, as we give rise to the underground world of music and set out to do what so many others have failed to, be a staple for the independent musician. Now, let's make some noise. Like an old oak wheel It turned me around Warm boots and a brand new deal Look at me now I've been known to sit and watch the starlight turn to dawn And I've been known to listen to the crickets carrying on away today Disappointments 
This is episode 29 of the Noisemaker Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. If you're returning, then thank you. If you like what we're doing here, please like, subscribe, and rate us with a five-star review. We are on all your favorite streaming platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NoisemakerPod. Also, we are working on a Patreon subscription service with some added content, bonuses, so stay tuned for that. This is the Noisemaker Podcast, where we help you with that horrible problem that we all face, where to find new and original music. On the line with me is Grant Malloy-Smith. How are you doing, Grant? Hey, I'm doing great. Good to be with you and all, all your listeners. Great, great. Yes, it's, it's, an, it's an honor to have you. We're going to get into some of your accolades in a, a, a little while later in the show, but uh, it is an honor to have uh, someone that has you know your uh, achievements on the show. So I, I do appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's just jump in here. I, I would say that you're you're obviously a singer songwriter, and uh, I see that you play guitar. But do you do you play anything else? And what do you do for yourself? And what do you outsource to others? You know, behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I play a, a variety of instruments. I play the piano. I play the ukulele. I can play the banjo, the mandolin, the bass. Um, I'm pretty much anything with strings and frets I can <laughs> figure out in a matter of moments. Things you have to blow into, I'm very bad at. Uh, inner tubes, kazoos, not very good at any of that. Um, and percussion, I can do some little percussion, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself a percussionist. So when I make, I, I do it kind of two ways, I'll, or in two stages, I should say. I make my own demos, like when I, that's part of my songwriting process is where I actually record the song just in my own studio. And in that case, I'll pretty much play all the instruments um, that I know how to play anyway. And then, but what I end up with there is a song that's representative of what I want to get. So we go into the, like a real studio then. And I outsource just about everything except the the guitar, which I I like to play myself. Sometimes I have another guitar player also play, but like on Dust Bowl, I played all the guitars except on one song and uh, that was like a special case so if somebody can do something amazing that i can't do uh, i'll be happy to have them do that uh unless it's so amazing that i could never repeat it live then maybe it's better not to do it (laughs) yeah (laughs) unless i want to hire them to come with me full time for the rest (laughs) of their lives but um but yeah i I, like when we go in the studio i'll have you know get all these really great players like on my dust bowl record we had all the not all of them because there's hundreds, but many top players in Nashville and a couple in New York City too uh, played on that record. They just made it so much better than I ever could ever could do by myself. Great. This sounds like it sounds like you do a lot of collaboration, and that's always uh, that's always super fun as a as a musician. So it really is. It really and it's it's so much. You're right. It is. It's, a you get a better result, that's for sure, and B it's a lot more fun to work with other people than just to try <laughs> to do everything yourself and. I mean, you can, you can do a lot by yourself t- today because of the equipment, but you can't replace the input that other people will give you 
each person no. brings their own history, their own art, their own talent, and there's no way any single person can have that. It's impossible. So it's good I've to get other people involved. I've seen this label on, on some of your websites and I actually kind of thought it was a, a pretty cool, maybe like subgenre, kind of your own niche genre of, uh, mm -hmm. of this um, pop rock Americana style that you have, but you kind of labeled it as American roots. And, uh, can you go ahead and, uh, tell me a little bit about the influences that you've adapted in, in the uh, creation of this unique sound? Yeah, for sure. American roots. I call it, basically the, the land of misfit toys of music <laughs> because you have you have known genres very clear genres like bluegrass is very you know defined so is country music so is folk music so is you know celtic folk music but if you don't fit squarely into one of those but you you might be more one than the other you might have influences from several of them and it could even be different song to song like one song like yeah. I have songs that are kind of con more country than anything else and other songs that are more kind of Celtically influenced or more folk or more even bluegrass in some cases. Um, if they don't, if you don't fit squarely into any of those holes, then you're probably American roots. You're, you're in this, <laughs> this uh, purgatory land or land. I always jokingly say the land of misfit toys. You're not, <laughs> you don't quite fit somewhere you're like the Jack in the box without a spring or <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you're like almost country, but, but the lyrics are maybe a little bit more like folk or yeah, vice versa. I would say the land of misfit musicians, but it seems like almost all <laughs> musicians are misfits. Yeah, that would be a, a redundancy in terms. <laughs> yeah. So I, I see you've played in a lot of music scenes. Uh, I, I read, you know, Florida, Rhode Island, California, and I believe you're back in Rhode Island now. So can you tell me a little bit about all the music scenes you've been in, some pros and cons and how they might have, uh, how these also have influenced you? Yeah, well, when I, I grew up in uh, northern Florida on the, on the Panhandle, it's the part that's right below Alabama, and uh, people jokingly call it the Redneck Riviera or <laughs> lower Alabama. But when I, when I was growing up there, it was mostly country music primarily, but my parents didn't play that. They didn't like that so much. My mother did a little bit, but my grandmother, however, would visit us, and she was from eastern Kentucky. She, she was hardcore into really kind of old style, you know, because of her age, old style country music and mountain music, which kind of evolved to become more bluegrass, we call bluegrass today. Yeah. Um, and she played that stuff for me when I was a kid and I liked it, but I, I, I tended to gravitate more toward the, the pop music because I was a little, I was a kid, you know, and I, yeah. I the Beatles were big and I was like, <laughs> oh, I want to be in the Beatles. They weren't taking any blonde haired kids from Florida, so I, I didn't get to be in the Beatles. But, uh, but the, I think it kind of influenced, it did, they both influenced me. You know, the Beatles are great melodic, really great, <clears throat> particularly the McCartney songs. He's a brilliant melodist. And uh, <clears throat> I think, you know, he did his best work, I think, when he was with the Beatles. Well, so did John, so did, so did they all, actually. Yeah. <clears throat> Even George Harrison wrote some of the best songs that they ever did um, in the last couple of albums. Like here comes the sun, and you know the song yeah, something. Yeah, and those were equal to Lennon McCartney songs. But if you imagine being in a group of those two guys, you better <laughs> step up your game. A little yeah. Bit. <laughs> so, but he did, you know, and that, all that stuff kind of influenced me: the the mountain music, country music, the very melodic pop music, and um, I think it all kind of came together to make me whatever I am. It's kind of a mixture of all that. 
So I know we kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, you were kind of talking about the writing process uh, during the recording, but um, how about the writing process, like the actual songwriting process? What what does that look like for you? <clears throat> Usually, there's two ways the song will be started or get sparked. One would be, and this happens a lot, I wake up in the morning and have an idea or get in the shower five minutes later and have an idea. And then, I, then I'm like really anxious to get the shower over with so I can go work on it before I forget it. And uh, that happens a lot. I've probably written half my songs that way, like first thing in the morning. But I think <laughs> things are like brewing around in, in your head and then they just sort of pop out when you're not really trying to have them. It's like when you have a problem and you're trying to solve it. The best thing sometimes is just to forget about it, get a good night's sleep, and you wake up, you might just have the answer, you know, like your yeah. brain worked on it when you were sleeping. <laughs> and you finally got to a place where you weren't intellectually thinking about it or even conscious. And then it was able to break loose, you know, like an ice cube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, and other ways happen that it does happen a lot, too, is I'm I'm, I'm working on a, a different song, even just playing it, you know, recording it. And I play something by accident and I go, oh, I like that. I didn't mean to play <laughs> that. But man, that that's like a different song. And I'll even I've even stopped a whole song and go off and and write a different one, <laughs> at least to a certain point, so I could get the structure of it while it was fresh in my in my brain. Um, but usually after I I'll work on it just usually with the guitar, sometimes with the piano, but usually the guitar these days. Um, I get it to a certain point where I where I feel like it's it's like 75% there. Sometimes I'll go ahead and if I if I really feel it, I'll just write the whole thing without recording anything but i usually will do a simple just a really rough recording yeah. for me that's like it's like uh, uh i guess it's like a sketch pad you know you, you put it down and you you write you know when once you've written it down then you can uh see what's good about it and what's not good about it yeah you know yeah. it gets it gets easier to uh to get it there on paper in front of you in my case on a in a in a computer so I can hear it and go, okay, now I like this part. And then I can just, I literally cut and, or copy and paste and, and say, <laughs> yeah. well, I should move this before that. And then I, and even though it, I, it's got, it's all glitchy because I just cut something and put it somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't matter. I, I'm just building it. I'm like doing a, like, like building Legos together. <laughs> and then I, and then I'll try to sing it and try to figure out what the words should be. Sometimes I have some words. I usually have a few, but not all of them. I'll have the idea. And yeah, then, sometimes then it's, it's just, just a, a matter of, uh, you know, right. Well, definitely have melody, but then I refine it too. When I sing it against the, against what I've played, then it'll get better. Then I really work at the melody to make it better and better and more interesting. So that, so that's why I said earlier that recording songs is really part of the writing process for me because it allows me to put them, put things down and then make them better. It's interesting. Cause I actually, I actually was laughing because I write, that's what I do more than anything is, is write lyrics and whatnot. So whenever you were talking about working on a song and then, you know, just jumping ship to write something else, <laughs> a different one. Yeah. yeah. That, 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 that sidetracked part of the, uh, the musician yeah. brain, you know, I just, as soon as you said <laughs> yeah. that, I was like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how I write. Yeah. A lot of my songs, I'll start working on something almost just kind of noodling around or, or playing around with an idea. And then the yeah. good one comes, you know, while I'm doing that, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 So the song we heard at the top of the show is called, and the rain comes down. Do you mind giving us a little bit of background on what that song's about? 
Sure. Well, that's from my album called Dust Bowl American Stories, and it's it, that it's it's a theme album where all the songs are set in the time the 1930s of the Great Plains, where we had this big environmental disaster where it didn't rain for most of the decade, and as a result, the uh, the topsoil dried up and blew into the clouds, and and then these enormous dust clouds came across the prairie dozens and dozens of times. So uh, it's this that song is the last song in the album, and it's meant to be the resolution where it does start raining again. It's like the end of the story. It's like the final scene of a movie, if you look at it that way. Yeah. Where, you know, you people have come through the worst of it, and um, and their lives are starting to come back together again. The rain is coming. Life is coming back to the prairie, and there's hope again. So it has that, it should feel like an exaltation kind of a feeling where, you know, you lift your arms up, and you just... You want to stand outside in the rain. Normally, we don't want to stand outside in the rain, but when it hadn't rained for nine years, you might really just want to run out there, and <laughs> take your shirt off, and and drink it all in in your skin. And that that's the feeling I wanted to give in that in that song. Yeah, more like a a strong resolution. So you have yeah. like a resolution usually for a song, but instead now you have it for an album. Right. Well, it's a really unique way to tell a story too. I think that that's that's pretty cool. That I didn't realize that Dust Bowl was actually a more along the lines of like a concept album, which is really, yeah. really awesome. So this, yeah. the next song though is called I Come From America. So do you mind mm-hmm. telling us a little bit about the song I Come From America? Yeah, I don't mind at all. So <laughs> that song is sort of in the middle of the, what maybe three quarters of the way through the history of the Dust Bowl where, um, I don't know, if pe- I don't know if people really don't know much anymore about the history of it, but during those years, there were more than three and a half million people Americans that left the Great Plains and just they just abandoned everything they owned because there was the Great Depression also at that time and even the banks couldn't give you a penny for your house so they just abandoned everything if they had anything left and they go just tromp across the country looking for a new place to live and where they could get some work and um, and that's uh, that song is about the Americans who migrated out to California Central Valley like Bakersfield. That's what's encapsulated in uh, the the Steinbeck book, The Grapes of Wrath, the aftermath of the of the exodus out of the Great Plains, where people, you know, they descended on that area of California looking for jobs and doing agriculture. It's the only thing they knew how to do, you know, picking beaches or whatever, yeah. corn. And there were jobs out there, but there was probably uh, one job for every hundred people that was looking for a job. And so they ended up living in. Uh, shanty towns and just they get some corrugated tin and make a little shack in the middle of a field somewhere and <laughs> this is we're talking about three to four hundred thousand people yeah you know, during those those years but and and although they weren't treated too well but uh you know you could almost understand it because what if all of a sudden three hundred thousand people with no jobs and no education and no money showed up in your town and just started setting up camp in every field that they could find <laughs> you know it's a big stress on the on the whole system and yes but back then there were no legal protections and they just got very mistreated back in the 1930s but they never forgot who they were you know they were americans and they kept their pride and they got through it and eventually they assimilated world war ii came along you know after the dust bowl ended and they all got jobs in southern california building airplanes and that kind of stuff so they they came through it but that song uh, i come from america is meant to be like my version of woody guthrie's this land is your land (laughs) <laughs> you know, it tells a positive story about the American spirit and the American homeland. But there's there's an understory, too, a backstory, you know, that is 
represents the reality of it too. You know, life is not just sea to shining sea and beautiful, you know, peaches dropping out of the sky. It's not the way life ever was or ever will be. That maybe that one week in the Garden of Eden. That's about it. <laughs> After that, it's been, you know, life is hard. So I, it's meant to be positive, but also with, you know, the understory about the, the migrants. Great. Well, this is I Come From America by Grant Malloy Smith. <laughs> Texas in my eyes I left her but she's still strong in me We broke down in King Man so we walked to Bakersfield Don't you know the mother like me hey y'all this is rocky fernberg from the noisemaker podcast and i wanted to tell you all about warming guitars we all know that tone is the soul of the guitar and pickups create that perfect sound still the price of pickups can really break the bank these guys at warming guitars crank out some rad pickups at an affordable price i have been a boutique pickups guy my whole life however i find that the tone i pull out of warman's pickups is comparable to top manufacturers without the outrageous markup I endorse Warman Guitars as a common sense alternative to pickups. And right now, Warman Guitars is offering exclusively to my listeners 20% off. That's right. When you go to warmanguitars.co.uk and enter Noisemaker20 at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your purchase. These pickups are already ridiculously affordable, and yet 
Warman wants to offer the listeners of the Noisemaker podcast an additional 20% off by entering Noisemaker20 at checkout. So take a minute and visit my friends over at warmanguitars.co.uk and pick up your 20% off when you use Noisemaker20 at checkout. Warming Guitars, a new heritage. Alright, so we're back with Grant Malloy-Smith. So let's go ahead and dive into the big question here. You have a lot of achievements, but let's kick it off with asking about your billboard charting. Tell us what song or what album uh, was actually on the charts and a little bit about the experiment. Or not experience. A little bit about the experience. My excuse me. Yeah, I know what you meant. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, well, in fact, it, it is the album, the, the Dust Bowl album that you've been playing songs from. That's the one that uh, last fall was on the Billboard charts. Um, it was on the in the top ten of the Americana slash folk um, album sales chart on Billboard for uh, eleven weeks. It was on other charts too, but it was on the charts overall for uh, seventeen weeks last wow. fall. That was cool. It was a cool experience. I've never been on the charts before. So uh, it was, it's nice. It's sort of like if you win a Grammy, which I did not do. But if you win a <laughs> Grammy, you can say forever, oh, I'm a Grammy winner. It doesn't yeah. matter if it was 50 years ago. It doesn't, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah. Um, and it could be a, it could be the Grammy for that you played the kazoo on the SpongeBob soundtrack. Okay. <laughs> but it's still a Grammy. Yeah. It's still, it's still a Grammy. So <laughs> you don't have to tell what it's for. So, so what this, kind of billboards like that? What kind of work actually went into making that happen as an independent musician? A lot, because you have to do a lot of promotion, and you have to, I mean, I spent a lot of money on radio promotion, and then there's digital promotion. There's all kinds of, it's basically just the same way you'd sell anything. Billboard charts, uh, at least the ones I was on, are, are driven by sales, by album sales that are reported to, to Nielsen SoundScan, which tracks sales and then reports them to Billboard. So um, the, there are also different charts, like the big pop charts and the big top 100 or whatever. Those are composite or hybrid charts that are um, a composite of different metrics like sales, of course, but also streaming and uh, a few other things, like radio play, all mixed together. But that's pop. I'm, I'm not a pop artist, so I'm, you know, I have a, I'm in a segment of the market or a, a genre. So typically yeah. the charts I'm on would be, would be just, they don't really only have sales charts for Americana. Um, but it's just to, like any other product, you know, the record is a product. It just takes a lot of advertising to get people to know about it and, and want to buy it. And, and people today, it's even harder today because no one really wants to buy anything. Uh, <laughs> in music, they want to just get paid $10 a month to Apple or Spotify, you know, get access to every song ever written. Yeah. Uh, which is great as a consumer, not so great as someone who spent $30,000 to make a record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so, you're, uh, you're not you're not only working on, on music, on albums. Uh, I also was reading that you've scored a number of films and TV. So can you kind of tell us what, what's the writing process? What's the difference between the writing process between writing an album versus, you know, scoring film or writing for TV? I think that in some ways... Um, the TV movie stuff is easier because you know uh, it's not a blank piece of paper. You have a specific thing you have to do, and it's very it's very clearly defined. Particularly in the case of a movie, you can watch a movie. If you watch a movie without any music yet, it's usually a tough experience because we expect there to be music, and it's movies are very dry without music. They really are. 
But so as someone who's seen a lot of movies, like most of us have, you watch one of these and you go, okay, I've got to have music here. Usually you sit down with the director and, and then you agree uh, on where music should be and what the role of the music is. It's usually obvious, but maybe not. Maybe the director has an idea of, of something they want to achieve. But, so you, get, you end up with this list of cues that you have to write. And then you figure out, okay, I want to have an overarching theme too. I want to have a musical palette. Like if you start a painting, you know, you want to say, oh, it's going to be kind of a, a blue painting. You know, it's going to have a lot of cool colors or it's going to be very warm or whatever. You, end up, you have a palette. It's the same with music. You say, I want to have kind of a gritty sound or I want to have a very lush sound. You, you, you define the kind of sound you want to have, the texture of it. And then it's a matter of just filling in the blanks. So in terms of creating stuff and writing stuff, Movies in, in TV are easier. However, hmm. unlike making a record where there's no time limit, typically, it's whenever you're done, it's done. <laughs> uh, unlike that, movies and TV are like, they finish shooting, they edit it, they lock the picture, you have identified where you're going to have music and what it's going to do, and then they're, they're looking at their watch going, are you done yet? <laughs> well, I just started. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, the time crunch is really, it, there's a lot of pressure and you end up spending a lot of, you know, like 12 to 15 hour days, uh, create, you know, just creating music for, for these things because the time crunch is so difficult. So creatively speaking, it's easier, but uh, logistically it's harder. Huh. Interesting. Well, I know you've had some, some other awards besides the ones we've mentioned. Do you mind telling us a little bit about some of the other stuff uh, that you've won or uh, other accolades that you've received and how that's uh, affected you or anything about some of the other stuff you've won? Hmm. I don't really care. Uh, not that I don't care, but I don't really think about awards too much. But uh, I, think, I think last year I got um, Best Americana Artist at the, the Indie Music Channel Awards. Uh, and I also got um, some. I did not win a Grammy, but I got. I was. I was a an associate producer of a, an album that won two Grammys. So I got some nice certificates from the Recording Academy that are. They look nice on the wall. <laughs> but uh, that, those are. I mean, that's fun. I like. I like looking at those things. It doesn't really. I, I think it's more impressive to other people. It doesn't really. I don't, I don't get carried away about those things. If they handed me a check for a million dollars, I'd go, oh, now, now you're talking. <laughs> yeah, can I cash Can I cash these in? <laughs> yeah, I'd go to the bank with my little statue, and they're like, okay, thanks. Uh, are you going to make a deposit today? Yeah, like, look, I'm Americana Artist of the Year. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I, there's no money in your account. Oh. <laughs> I got to get that. That's good. Yeah, it, it doesn't. Uh, but, awards but don't it, necessarily pay the bills. No, they're fun. <laughs> Believe me, when they call, call your name and you get to go up there and you know get your, your statue, it's it's more fun than not getting it. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe if you got like a big statue, like maybe one that would have you know like a like a whole big statue of you or something, <laughs> that might be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Like that NASCAR one they get at the end of the year, it's like <laughs> ten feet tall. Right? I'll take that one. Yeah, yeah. So if you were on an island and you could bring only three things, what would you bring? Wow. Uh, besides food and water. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's just say that you could hunt, you could forage, and and and, and okay, drink so the I water. I need to bring. All right. <laughs> well, I have to bring my wife. Yeah. Although she maybe maybe I wouldn't though because I'd be I'd be condemning her to be on an island. So I'd have that's a real moral dilemma. Sounds kind of selfish. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'd have you know what I'd have to ask her if she wanted to go. 
But <laughs> my my instinct would be to bring her. She'd probably tell me, uh, enjoy the island. Yeah. But, <laughs> <laughs> I'll be, she'd be like, I'll, I'll be like OJ searching for the real killers. Yeah, I'll, I'll rescue you someday. <laughs> I have to bring the guitar. Uh, I got to have at least one guitar, and, yeah. and and probably a box of strings because I'd be there presumably a long time. <laughs> and and I guess uh, I don't know. I don't know what the third thing would be. I guess it all the hinges. Oh, I think I lost you for a second. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. I I, th- I think I think what you were getting at was uh, the fact that you would have to leave that third space open ended in case your wife wanted to come. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd have to get creative. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, this, the next song that we have coming up is called uh, Old Black Roller. You mind giving us a little bit of a, a background or information on Old Black Roller? Yeah. So Old Black Roller is meant to be, by the way, yeah, you just broke up again. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Old Black Roller, go ahead and give us a lowdown. Right, so these Black Rollers or Black Blizzards were the big giant dust storms that came across the plains in, you know, during the Dust Bowl. And they brought a lot of heartache and people got respiratory disorders from breathing and all that dirt. It was, they were just devastating. And so that song, yeah, it's meant to be the uh, dramatic climax of the, of the album. So if, if you could imagine a farmer looking out across the Great Plains and he sees one of these things coming from the distance, you're about to bring more more devastation, and he's yelling at it basically as if it were alive, you know, as if it were a monster <laughs> coming across, like Godzilla stomping yeah. across the plains to mash his house down and bury everything under 10 feet of dirt. And uh, it's meant to be really dramatic, and it's 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 the it's most serious moment I I think on the record. Interesting. That I I could only imagine how uh, scary and in, intimidating something like that would would be, especially to your livelihood. Yeah, and they happened like in 1932. There were 14 of these storms. The next year there was more than 40, and they just kept getting worse. And uh, the worst ones were in 35. And so it wasn't like it wasn't like it happened once. You know, not like a like a hurricane happens once and it's devastating. But imagine if they just kept happening. <laughs> Like a month later, there'd be another hurricane, and then a month, uh, three weeks later, another one. You know, wow. you'd feel like you could never catch your breath, and she'd be terrified about you know the, what, what could happen. And you know, they were they were so strong and so uh, thick that you couldn't see. You know, you, there's no way to even open your eyes when they're there. No. And it, also, they made it be like midnight. You couldn't see anything anyway, even if you could open your eyes. Yeah, and people literally tied themselves with clotheslines to their front door, in case they were outside when one came, because otherwise they could never find their own house from their front yard. <laughs> that's in, that's insane. That's I crazy. know we can't even imagine it, right? <clears throat> so imagine how terrifying it would be year after year. This is Old Black Roller by Grant Malloy Smith. <laughs>
focus Lord let us prevail We're from Oklahoma We're hard as horseshoes For a professional screen printer, Ghost Town Hardware has high quality staff to accommodate all your screen printing needs. Are you in a band, on a sports team, or looking for company t shirts? Whatever it may be, Ghost Town Hardware provides skilled professionals that will complete the job on time. Ghost Town Hardware strives to provide the best product at the perfect price. I have personally used Ghost Town Hardware several times in the past. Not only did my band repeatedly purchase shirts, stickers, and more, but I also used Ghost Town Hardware to provide attire for my event staff. I have been treated fairly and with respect, which is not something everyone can say. Right now, for new clients, Ghost Town Hardware is offering 60% off all setup fees when you use the promo code NOISEMAKER60. Once again, Ghost Town Hardware is taking over half of the setup fee price off for new clients when you use NOISEMAKER60. To redeem your 60% off setup fees, just email Josh at gthardware at gmail.com. That's G-T-H-A-R-D-W-E-A-R at gmail.com. Or you can call at 208-731-3566. Again, that's 208-731-3566. And use the promo code NOISEMAKER60 to get 60% off your setup fees. Ghost Town Hardware quality over quantity. Some restrictions may apply. All right, so we got Grant Malloy Smith here for just a few more moments. So uh, what would you say to a younger musician? What words of encouragement would you give to them? Well, I guess it depends on if they want to make music their their business and their livelihood or if they just want to play music and enjoy music. There are two different things. You know, there's the music and then there's the business. They're interconnected. And um, the music is definitely more fun than the business part of it. But if you want it to be your livelihood, then you have to master the business side of it or at least work real hard at it because um, without that, you know, you'll you'll be very poor. <laughs> you have to You have to really work at it and try to make some sense out of it it's it's kind of harder now although in some ways it's it's easier than like like when i was a kid you know there was no digital music there was no internet you know like 40 years ago 30 years ago even barely um that anybody could use there was no music on the internet there's really no internet that anybody had access to except maybe a few eggheads at a university and the government so that's changed everything and also the digital recording equipment we have today you know you could make a record a uh, very good quality record um, in your house. And that was impossible also like 40, 30, 40 years ago. So there's many good things about the whole internet and technology, very good things to help creativity. There's access to more kinds of music than ever before because of the internet. Like, like I can imagine, I'm trying to imagine when I was a kid trying to listen to 
Ethiopian hand drum music. Now, how would you ever do that? Of course, today, you just go to Google and you type in Ethiopian hand drum music. By the way, I just made that up. I don't even know if there is such a thing. <laughs> there probably is. You type that in, and two seconds later, you're listening to Ethiopian <clears throat> hand drum music. And, you know, that was impossible before the Internet. So that's all good stuff. But, it, but at the same time, it also means that people expect to access to music instantly and basically for free. So it's very difficult to, you know, spend a lot of money making a record and then get no money back. Uh, from sales you have to make money in different ways and that that's the part that takes a lot of um, kind of marketing skills and and at the beginning no one's going to do it for you um, except scam artists when you pay them lots of money so don't <laughs> you, you have to do it yourself and it takes a lot of work and it's not the kind of fun work that musicians typically like to do so i guess if you've decided that you want to make it your life you know your life's work then you just got to go for it, but realize it's like saying you want to write uh, French romantic poetry. It's going to be difficult to make a living unless you can find a bunch of students that you can teach teach it to. <laughs> it's one of those topics, you know. So a lot of my friends, including me, we we teach, you know, whatever we know. I like I teach guitar lessons to people locally and, and online too, and you know, just to try to supplement my because I don't have another job. I don't. I don't. This music is my only job. Yeah. Well, you kind of you kind of took over my next question. My next question kind of had to do a little bit with uh, uh, basically how um, how the music industry has changed. I mean, what's you know what's the difference between you know before the internet and and you know the internet today? I mean, because obviously there's yeah. it's easier and harder at the same time, you know. Right. And right. you know it's and kind of what we've covered on the show before with some other artists is that it's it's easier to get your music out to more people, but it's mm-hmm. it's harder to cut through all the muck. So I yeah, guess because there's a million people doing it, and so how do you get known? How do you how do you get someone to find you when there's a thousand or a hundred thousand or a hundred million other people all doing exactly not the kind of music, but they're all doing what you're doing? You know, they're putting their music out there. Um, it's it's a good time as a, as the consumer of music because you can find everything. You know, it's amazing what you can find today. Uh, but as so, as a purveyor of music, it's hard to be to be seen. You know, you're you're like the one little uh, pack of gum in a, in a Walmart. You know, <laughs> how do you yeah. get people to buy you instead of uh, all the other millions of products that are in that store? Yeah, and it's kind of on the same on the same line here. One of the other questions I had was, you know, how does how does an artist uh, get and actually keep fans and what do you think the uh, biggest obligation once you have those fans is to the fans you have hmm um well getting them i mean i get a lot of fans that from shows that i do that's probably the that's probably where you're going to get the strongest fans because they have a direct connection with you you know they've seen you in person and they know you and, uh, you know, they've been near you or at least in the same room. And maybe they met you after the show. <laughs> um, but you've got to you've got to the way you can uh, you got to get them to sign up. And I, I'm a big believer in having a database where you have their email address or their phone number or, or, or both if you can. So that when you're doing a show a year later in where they live, that you can just send them a little note. Say, hey, I'm going to play the whatever theater <laughs> that I did last year or one close to the one you saw me at a year ago. Yeah. It would be great to see you again. And, you know, let's, let's, I'd like to talk to you after the show. You got to make that personal connection. 
with people. But the only way is, I mean, after you've done 100 shows, you can't remember the people. And if you don't have their contact information, there's no way to reach them. You can put stuff out on Facebook and Twitter, but that's, you know, that's like drinking out of a fire hose. Because <laughs> you put stuff out there, but what are the odds that anybody's going to see it? You know, maybe 1% at the most of your followers would, would see it because they just go by like, you know, like water out of the fire hose, millions of yeah. drops a second. So you've just got to get, you got to get their names and their, and really stay connected to them. And every once in a while, don't drive people crazy with an email every day. That's makes everybody crazy. Me too. I hate that. <laughs> I just, I immediately unsubscribe. Like you're taking advantage of me now. To, I'm not, I don't care that you're playing in Brazil. I don't live in Brazil. <laughs> don't send me those. Send them targeted to me. And people, yeah. <laughs> or, another, uh, you got to be smart about it and not just, you know, spam people. Be, yeah. be respectful of them and send them stuff of interest to them. If it's something big that maybe they're not going to go to because they, they live too far away, if it's really big, like I want a Grammy or I'm playing at Carnegie Hall, which by the way, <laughs> I actually am. Oh, <laughs> well, congratulations. So that I would put out because it's, I think, of significant enough interest <laughs> that even if, you know, a guy lives in Bangladesh, he's obviously not going to come um, to <laughs> Carnegie Hall. <laughs> unless he's a really good fan but nonetheless i think that's significant enough that it warrants being put out there but I, you know i don't get booked at carnegie hall very often so i'm not going to be spamming people uh I, it's better to do you know respectful very you know selective regional regionally targeted communications with people so that they know it's the you know i chose them by name each one and it's like okay, i'm going to send this email to these 15 people that's it. Not to everybody because, you know, I'm playing in Lexington, Kentucky. I have 28 fans around that area. I'll send it to them and yeah. no one else because, you know, I want to spam people. So, I think that's the best way. Just be respectful of, of the fans. What do you believe that the difference between a, an amateur and a professional musician is? Well, I mean, well, technically, if you make money, you're a professional. <laughs> it's not really a measure of quality. <clears throat> <laughs> directly and it, it, I mean it might it usually is because if you're making money playing music you're probably good but there are plenty of amateurs that are extremely good and they just don't even try they just like to play you know like I know some golfers that are amazing and they could probably get into some of the tournaments but they they don't want to you know they have a yeah. job um so they're amateurs because they they pay to play golf you know they don't get paid <laughs> but they <laughs> But they are really extremely good, so they might be better than some of the some of the pros. Hmm. So amateur professional is not necessarily a measure of uh, ability or or you know quality. It just has to do with money, I think. I like that. So this next part of the show, I kind of have it open for people to uh, plug whatever they want, throw any kind of shout outs they want, tell people where they can find your music. I'll I'll link to everything in the show notes. But this is kind of open for you. Uh, we've had people tag uh tattoo shops and pizza shops i mean whatever you want this is all you here <laughs> well maybe i'll just give my website because um that's from there you can find all the other links you know to twitter and facebook and instagram and all and youtube and apple music all that stuff you know you can find all the links to uh and you can also watch videos that i have there on on my website and listen to songs that I have there musically, uh, just music, not videos, but both and pictures and all that, all that kind of stuff. So my website is, is just my, my three names, uh, <laughs> Grant. <laughs> it's just my middle name. And my, no, the reason I use my middle name is because Smith is so boring. And if you put, <laughs> if, 
if you put Grant Smith in, you'll find a thousand people, none yeah. of whom are me. But if you put Grant Malloy Smith in, you will find me. You'll find me immediately. So Malloy just has one L. That throws people a lot. They usually because normally you spell it with two L's, but yeah. for some reason mine just has one L. I don't know why. Uh, just is that way in my family going back a lot of generations. So if you go Grant Malloy M A L O Y Smith dot com. Uh, you can put hyphens between the names, but you don't have to. If you don't, it'll correct it and put hyphens in between. Um, and that's my website, grantmalloysmith.com. And once you get there, you can watch videos, you can listen to music, you can see my show schedule of where I'm going to be playing. Um, as I mentioned, maybe the next thing I'll, I'll plug is I'm going to play uh, at Carnegie Hall on uh, November the 19th. And that's going to be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. Um, on Monday... The seventh, um, you can't watch it that day unless you're in Lexington, Kentucky. But I'm recording. Uh, I'm appearing on a, a PBS uh, show. It's also in front of a live audience um, called Wood Songs Old Time Radio Hour. So that's a PBS uh, and I guess NPR syndicated radio show and TV show. So, but I don't know when it'll be on TV. Normally, I did one a few months ago called Song of the Mountain down in uh, southwestern Virginia. That's also syndicated on PBS. I filmed it in April. Um, they still didn't tell me when it's going to be on. They did tell me it'd probably be like in the fall sometime. Normally they they film like six months ahead of time, you know. Yeah. Then they edit them and put them on the TV later. So <clears throat> I've got a couple of things coming on NPR later, sometime. Who knows when this year? But if you if you go to my website, you could also register to be a fan. If you do that, um, then you'll get believe me, you'll get notice uh, notifications when those things are going to be on, if they're on nationally like PBS, then I'll, I send that to everybody. Cause you know, everybody in the U S anyway can, can see him. And we it's know probably, that we know that you don't spam people, people. So that's good. No, I don't want to. <laughs> no. I, cause I, I think it's just cause I find it so annoying when yeah. somebody sends me every week. Like, I don't you know. Oh, by the way, here's my weekly blog and my, Oh, here's my dog. <laughs> you know, it's a cute dog it really is, but you know, I don't need to see Sparky. I don't. I'm busy. So well, once a month, maybe, but even I don't do that. I try not to. <laughs> not not to all the whole fan base. Anyway, just read, like I said before, segment segments. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's been great chatting with you, uh, Grant. Ed, thank you for coming on the show. Let's go ahead and close mm -hmm. out with uh, uh, what this last song is about. It's called yep. "Ride Ride That Train." Yeah, that's also from the Dust Bowl record. And what I wanted to have on the album. I mean, there's some songs that are directly about the, you know, the events of the Dust Bowl and the history of it. And the other songs are just kind of set in that world in, in the 1930s. And this is one of those. It's set in that world. And I always thought growing up with the country and, and folk music that you had to have a good train song on every record. <laughs> and you probably should have, you better should have maybe a good prison song, too. So I decided <laughs> to combine the two and make a train. It's not a train prison, but it's a prison <laughs> and train song. <laughs> That would be maybe a, that'd be a great idea for a song, actually, a prison train. Yeah, that that's that not sounds that very dramatic. Has yeah. it been done? Probably has been done. <laughs> Damn it! Why? Well, I didn't do it anyway. It's a it's a guy who's in prison. He's done some bad things, done some wicked things, and he's sending his woman away. He's telling her to get on a train, go far away from him, and never come back because he's he knows he's a bad he's a bad seed, and he doesn't want to hurt her anymore. And he knows he will if she stays. So he loves her, and he he wants her to never come back so to protect her from him that's what the song that's what it's about huh. well that's this is ride that train by grant Malloy's. 
I can't sleep without you I still roam And I'm not free I still rise Even when I'm falling Don't you wait Don't wait for me enjoyed this interview it was an awesome interview grant was so cool and the whole concept of the dust bowl album was great i was telling him off the air i remember hearing about the dust bowl like i don't know school sometime 
And anyways, it was so awesome. He gave me lots of more in-depth information and, and on the show as well, gave a lot of information about the history of it. So it was really awesome to listen to him talk about that. And I think that it's going to give me a newfound love for the songs now that I'm going to go back and listen to them with that actually in mind. So be sure to tune in next week as we will have a rockabilly band from Rhode Island. Once again, I would like to thank everybody for listening. Please like, share, subscribe, give us a review. I've included links to Grant's pages and his music in the show notes. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NoisemakerPod. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email me at NoisemakerPod at gmail.com. And until next time, don't stop following your dreams.